بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم نحمد صلی اللہ رسول الکریم اما بات الحمد للہ چنائی از دا ٹویلتھ آف ڈسمبر ان دا ایئر ٹو تھاؤزنڈ اینڈ ٹوینٹی تھری الحمد للہ وی موڈ آن ٹو دا فورٹی ایتھ نائٹ دا Sayyidina Abu Hurair radiyallahu And I spent quite a few sessions taking a glimpse into his awesome worship and also the blessed words he would relate to others i.e. to console and give them comfort So indeed our beloved messenger sallallahu alayhi wa he had instructed all the believers of a very important principle Sayyidina Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu, he relates, a Bedouin once started to urinate in the masjid. The people thus tried to stop him. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, leave him and pour over his urine a large bowl or container of water. Certainly you have been sent to make things easy and you have not been sent to make things difficult. This is recorded in Sahih Bukhari, Nasai, and Shaykh Al-Bani Rahmatullah stated Sahih in Irwa Ul-Ghali, number 1710. So this is a famous report. So the Bedouins, obviously, this was not something they did I, to cause offense. They were just rough people. So he started to urinate in the masjid. So obviously the companions started to stop him. But look how interesting. The Prophet ﷺ said, let him continue. After he's finished, pour over a large bowl or container of water over the urine. Then he made this very important clarification, ﷺ. You have been sent to make things easy. You have not been sent to make things difficult. Note that our beloved messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ordered that to be done immediately in order to purify the ground. However, if he had left it until it dried and its remains disappeared, then the place would have been considered pure once more. How do we know this? Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhumah, he said, Dogs used to urinate and pass through the masjid during the lifetime of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and they would not pour water over it. This is in Bukhari in Mu'allab form. Abu Dawood, Shaykh al-Bani rahmatullahi stated Sahih in Sahih Sunan Abi Dawood, number 368. So what's interesting? A ruling obviously can be deduced. The Prophet immediately said, pour water over the urine of the Bedouin. But if it had dried, then the drying itself would have been the purification. And the proof is mentioned here. Now look how simple the masjid was in the time of the Prophet Dogs would go in and out. You know, look how you know, strange that is to, you know, even to think, reflect. Dogs used to go in and urinate in the masjid. And what did Abdullah ibn Umar say? They would not pour water over it. So a person goes, why wouldn't they pour water over it? Because it would dry. And once it's dried, it's pure. Note, this was on the bare earth, for there were no carpets in that most auspicious of times. 
So obviously, you know, in those suspicious times, there was no carpets. But this is also very important to highlight. So that's with regards to the rule. But the Prophet he was saying again and again, you have been sent to make things easy, don't make things difficult. Another example in this regard was Mu'ad. Mu'ad, he would offer lengthy rakats. And the Prophet then rebuked him because why are you causing fitna, Mu'ad? Recite the shorter surahs because you've been sent to make things easy. So note, we should always accommodate, make things easy for people. And the other thing which is very striking, the Prophet didn't even tell the Bedouin to clear the urine. Got interesting. Like we said today, you made the mess, you clean it. He told the companions, he could let him you know, complete his you know, urine and then you go and pour water over that. And what's interesting, the Bedouin later became strong in his deen. And he, re- he recollected that incident and he goes, I've never seen anybody more, uh, more compassionate and more considerate than the Prophet. He goes, he didn't rebuke me. So he, that was a profound thing that impacted him. He goes, everybody else wanted to do something, but the Prophet goes, leave him. And the Bedouin said, in this had a profound impact upon me. Why? Because this is the deen. Versus ignorant, you know. Now be honest, if somebody comes into the masjid now and you're in it, so say, you know, would we do that? Let him finish. Let him finish. <laughs> and yeah, you know, where is the example gone? Astaghfirullah. Again, relating to the worship of Abu Huraira, in Ibn Sa'd in his tabakat 4-360, it mentions Sayyidina Abu Huraira, he traveled to Bahrain along with Allah ibn Hadrami, and en route, Sayyidina Allah, who asked him, Rasulullah has ordered me to treat you with respect. Thus now inform me what responsibility would you like to take on in Bahrain? Sayyidina Abu Huraira responded, Give me the responsibility of calling out the Azan. And also, you will not recite Ameen without me. So let's look at it. So this is recorded in Ibn Sa'ad in his tabakat 4-360. So I'm going to get to this point in his blessed life. But he went on jihad. And uh, the commander of the force was Sayyidina Allah ibn Hadram. Another very famous companion. And I'll mention more about him at the relevant time. Radiyallahu. So Allah, even though he was the commander, he said to Abu Huraira, Rasulullah has ordered me to treat you with respect. Think about that. So even though he's away from the Prophet now, the Prophet told the commander, treat him with respect, showing his love for Abu Huraira. So he said to him, he goes, what responsibility would you like in Bahrain? Meaning I will, I will give you anything you wish then. And look what he asked for. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for property. He didn't ask for position. He goes, just give me the responsibility of calling out the azan. So look at his love of worship. And you will not recite Amin without me. What did he mean by that? So Muhammad ibn Sirin, he said, Rahmatullah in Fattal Bari 2-217, Sayyidina Abu Huraira remained the Mu'azzin in Bahrain. And he made Sayyidina Allah promise that he would take his preoccupation with the duties of state into consideration when straightening the rows for Salat and not to hurry to begin the Salat. So Sayyidina Abu Huraira who will not be deprived 
of reciting Amin behind the Imam. Subhanallah. So look at his love for worship. He says, I want to be the Mu'azzin. Give me that honor. And you are the Imam. You will lead the press. But you must promise me that you will not utter the Amin before I join. Now what did he mean by that? What he meant was, if for some reason I don't get, you don't see me, wait for me. And he goes, and if you have to start the prayer, then make sure you don't say Amin before I join. Now why did he say this? Because there's a famous report. The Prophet said that if your Amin coincides with the angels when you're offering the congregational prayer in the masjid, all your previous sins are forgiven. So he thought, I'm not going to get deprived of that. He goes, make sure that I join before the Amin. He goes, don't say Amin before me. So look at these very interesting reports. What do you notice? His whole life was geared around worship. That was the most important thing in his life. He's doing jihad, which is also an immense act of worship. But what was he focusing upon? Worship, because I want to be a Mu'azzin. I want to make sure I get into the front stuff. I want to make sure I get to the Amin. In fact, in one report, Abu Huraira said that Khairun Kathir is in the first rakat. He goes, the abundant goodness is in the first rakat. Meaning that you should strive I, to get into the prayer, I, to get the maximum benefits. Note, like I mentioned, Sayyidina Abu Huraira had absolutely no desire for any duties of state. Look how interesting. You know, he could have asked for that. He goes, okay. Maybe the Amir of Bahrain. Or maybe the deputy. You'll be the Amir, I'll be your deputy. He didn't want nothing to do with it. Because I don't want to get involved in politics. He can just give me, you know, acts of worship which I can do comfortably without any responsibility. So now with regards to the Azan, there's a famous report. In Sahih Muslim, number 655, Abu Ash Sha'ata, he said, we were sitting with Sayyidina Abu Huraira in the masjid when the Mu'azzin called out the Azan. A man thereupon stood up in the masjid and started walking out. Sayyidina Abu Huraira then stared at him until he left the masjid. Upon this, Sayyidina Abu Huraira said, Indeed, this man has disobeyed Abu Qasim. So again, a very famous report. Azan has been uttered or called out in the masjid or outside of the masjid and a man leaves the masjid. Abu Huraira is watching him. You know Why? Because he's thinking, is he going to leave the masjid? And he left. And all Abu Huraira said was, this man has disobeyed Rasulullah. <laughs> Clarifying further. Abu Huraira relates that Rasulullah himself said, He is none but a hypocrite who hears the azan in this masjid of mine, then walks out without a necessity and does not come back. This is in Tabarani in his Ausat, Al Haytami in Majma al Zawai 2 5 stated Sahih, Majma al Bahrain, page 64, Sahih. So this is a special ruling for Masjid al-Nabi. The Prophet said, if you hear the Azan and you leave this Masjid of mine, he goes, this is hypocrisy. But you may leave with the necessity 
Aye, and then return. So obviously, for instance, you might need to do wudu. Obviously, you need to leave. Or there's an emergency and you need to leave. So note, who narrates that report? Abu Hurairah from the Prophet Imam Tirmadi, he commented here, Rahmatullah, in his Sunan number 204. This was the opinion of the people of knowledge amongst the Prophet's companions, and those who followed them. No one should leave the masjid after the azan has been called, unless for a necessity, such as performing wudu or for any other pressing need. So obviously, it could be some pressing need. They may have, you know, something might have happened. You need to leave. It's an emergency. So obviously, for that reason, no problem. But not for any need. It has to be a pressing need. For instance, you might think, oh, I need to, uh, I might sort the bill out. I've got 10 minutes before the prayer. No, that's not a pressing need. Right? You stay in the masjid once you hear the azan. So now what's interesting. One of the sheikhs, he was in the masjid. He, um, the azan took place. And he left the masjid. So somebody asked him, he goes, Imam, where are you going? He goes, I'm going to pray in the other masjid. <laughs> so he was the Imam. So obviously he's leading a prayer. You know? So obviously when people leave the masjid, don't just have a bad you know, assumption, opinion about them. You, know, you think good about them. You're thinking, oh, mashallah, he's, you know, he's got a need. He needs to do something. So if you're going to pray in another masjid, that's no problem as well. <laughs> as long as you pray the prayer. But some scholars say no. Because the azan was said in that area and you shouldn't leave the masjid except for the necessity. So again, this is something, this is the etiquette of the azan. Imam Nawubi, he said, Rahmatullah in Al-Majmu, volume 2, page 175, it is not prohibited that one passes wind in the masjid, but it is better not to do so because Rasulullah said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, verily the angels, alayhi salatu wasalam, are harmed with that which harms the people. This is another ruling. So Imam Nawawi, an Imam of the Shafi'i school, in his work, Al-Majmu, he goes, it is not forbidden to break wind in the masjid. You're not sinful. But it is better not to do so. I.e. It's, it's like disrespectful to break wind in the masjid. And the proof he gives is what the Prophet said. The angels are harmed with what harms the people. Obviously, an unpleasant smell will harm the angels. You're disturbing the angels. So, obviously, if you need, you know, to, you know, go for a call of nature or whatever, you leave the masjid. That's a necessity. Or you leave the masjid if you're going to break windows, they say. However, here there's another important point. It is related in Al-Ibdah Fi Madar Al-Ibtidah, page 48 to 49. 40. Some people falsely believe that when one passes wind in the masjid, an angel, alayhi salatu wasalam, inhales it through his mouth, then exhales it outside the masjid and then dies. This is indeed a superstition, for such things are of the ghayb about which no one can inform us except Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasalam, and he never did. Besides, this superstition contradicts what really happens in such cases. For the smell spreads in the air of the masjid, like any other gas does in the air. So has the angel not fulfilled his duty? <laughs> so this is a, somebody's probably just got excited. He goes, look, you know, if you break wind in the masjid, you're troubling angels. How? He goes, it swallows it, and then it breathes out, and then it dies. <laughs> and then you think, you know, 
as Allah Ta'ala appointed angels to swallow the gas of the human beings and then he dies. So he goes, this is nothing but a lie, it's a superstition. And leaving aside that it's a lie, why then can I smell somebody break wind in the masjid? You know, everybody's got stories to tell. <laughs> what happened there? Did the angels miss out on that one, right? Or did they think, no, I don't want to die? You know, so obviously is rubbish. <laughs> But we could understand where it's coming from. Somebody was trying to protect the sanctity of the masjid. But we don't need lies. Right? So again, this is important. Now, why is that important for the people doing itikaf, the mu'takif? Because they don't even know what they're doing. Right? Brother, you're mu'takif. Can you break wind in masjid? Don't know. Well, why are you going to the masjid for that? You're spending 10 days. Are you going to be a, you know, a monk? Right? You know, you're supposed to ask. And sometimes you go into masjid and you can smell all sorts. Came into masjid once you smell like a, you know, egg factory. Stuck with them. And you know, they had, I don't know what was going on. So I thought, what is going off here? The masjid used to be clean. Clean of body odor, you know, they were cracking eggs. Right? So again, and then obviously they couldn't probably smell it because they got accustomed to it. But everybody walking in thought, what is this? Right? Stuck with them. So again, when you're in the masjid, Take things with you to keep the masjid clean and you get rewarded for this, obviously. So, not Abu Huraira, obviously, his teaching is all these etiquettes. Another report recorded in Ibn Abi Hatim, Hayat al Sahab, volume 4, page 507 of the New English Translation. Sayyidina Abu Huraira, he said, A woman once came to me and asked, Is there any repentance for me when I have committed adultery? given birth to a child and then killed it out of shame. So stop with the report. So imagine, brave woman, obviously got to give her credit. She said, I don't think that I can do Toba because I've committed adultery, one, one kabir, a major sin. I got pregnant and I killed the child. It goes, is there any repentance? So who is she asking? Abu Huraira. I responded in shock. Not at all. Neither can you expect any goodness or honor. She then got up and left with deep remorse. After offering the Fajr Salat behind Rasulullah I related to him the incident and he responded. Your reply was a terrible one indeed, O Abu Huraira. Do you not recite the verses? Surah Al-Furqan, Surah 25, verse 68 to 70, the translation. Those who do not call another God with Allah, who only kill a soul forbidden by Allah with a warrant and who do not fornicate, whoever commits these, I shirk, murder, adultery, fornication, shall meet with a grave punishment. Indeed, punishment will be multiplied for him on the day of judgment. He shall remain disgraced in it forever. Except for those who repent, accept belief, i.e. in the case of shirk, and perform righteous deeds. For such people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will convert their sins into good deeds. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ever most forgiving, most merciful. So stop in the report. So the woman has committed two huge crimes. She committed zina and she killed an innocent child. She goes, any repentance? So Abu Huraira, obviously, you know, just if you just logically think about it, repentance. He goes, and he, he probably feared for himself. He goes, no, neither can you expect any goodness or honor. 
Was he right? No. And then Fajr time came. The, he offered Fajr. And look how interesting. Abu Huraira told the, the, the incident to the Prophet. Why? Because this is the training of the Sahaba. Something was right. You know, he wasn't happy. So he thought, I need confirmation. He went to the Prophet And the Prophet didn't say, Oh, don't worry about it. You get one reward. What did he say? Your reply was a terrible one. Meaning, what did you just say? He goes, don't you recite the Quran? And what does Allah Ta'ala simply say? He mentions all of the crimes. Those who commit shirk, those who kill a soul forbidden, and those who fornicate, they shall meet with grave punishment. But then Allah Ta'ala says, <coughs> except those who repent, accept belief, perform righteous deeds, then look what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. Allah ta'ala converts their sins into good deeds. The hadith continues. Abu Huraira said, I quickly searched for the woman. When I found her, I recited these verses to her. And she fell into prostration. And she said, All praise belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who has created an escape for me. Subhanallah. All praise be to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who has created an escape for me. Meaning I thought I was doomed. So note Abu Huraira, due to his piety, his great fear of Allah, he was saying things. But if he was wrong, he was wrong. And he admitted it. Not only that, he went to the woman. And look how the woman felt, you know, the huge weight lifted. She fell into prostration. In another report, he adds details. In Ibn Jarir, Ibn Kathir's Tafsir, Volume 3, page 3 to 8, Hayat al-Sahaba, Volume 4, page 508 of the New English Translation. The woman cried out, Oh dear, has this beauty been created for Jahannam? When Abu Huraira said, no repentance. So she goes, has this beauty been created for Jahannam? It then goes on to mention, Sayyidina Abu Huraira, who searched for the woman throughout the neighborhood of Al-Madina, he was unable to find her. It was only when she came to him the following night that he was able to inform her about what Rasulullah had said. She fell into prostration saying, All praise belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who has created an escape for me and has allowed me repentance from my actions. She then set free a slave woman she owned together with the slave's child and proceeded to repent sincerely. To Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So let's look at this. It wasn't easy for Abu Huraira to find that woman. The previous report, you get the impression that he just went out of the masjid, he found her. This report says he couldn't find her. He searched everywhere for her. Only the following night, he managed to locate her. This shows it was a trouble. He wasn't from the neighborhood, as they say. And when he told her what the Prophet said, she prostrated and she thanked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But he adds something. What did she do by means of show of repentance? She set free a slave woman. That's the first thing. She set free the slave's child, the child of that slave. And she was now repenting. So this is very important to highlight. Why? Because this is a report. So with regards to these verses, we have the most informative narrative of Sayyidina Wahshi embracing Islam. So the verses of Surah Al-Furqan. But 
in order to understand the verses, you need to go through the report. So I'm going to go through it and to help explain what what this entails. So where's the hadith? So the hadith is recorded in Sayyid Bukhari, Sayyid Muslim, Nasai Abu Dawood Behaki, Hayat al-Sahaba, volume 1, page 1245 of the New English Translation. Related, similar, but without the mention of Sayyidina Wahshi. So this is important. I'm going to narrate the whole incident. And Sayyidina Wahshi is the central figure in the report. Bukhari Muslim relates the incident. It doesn't mention his name. So that's certainly worth pointing out. So how do we know it's Sayyidina Wahshi? Because when you look at the variant other reports, it mentions it. So let's go to the report. Abdullah ibn Abbas, he said, Rasulullah sent a messenger with the invitation of Islam specifically to Wahshi ibn Harb, who was responsible for the martyrdom of Hamza. So let's stop the report. Think about what I've just said there. Who but only a prophet of God would do that? Wahshi is not coming to the Prophet. <laughs> Rasulullah sent a messenger to him, find him, and tell him to embrace Islam. <laughs> so this is again showing the you know the greatness of the Prophet. The messenger delivered the message. One report says he was you know in Taif. <laughs> and he returned with the message from Wahshi. So Wahshi got the message, he was shocked. <laughs> He thought this man's, you know, maybe here to kill me. And instead he gets the invitation. So Washi goes, send the message back. <laughs> so the man memorized the message, he came back. And the message was, O Muhammad, how can you call me to Islam when you say that a murderer, an idol worshipper, an adulterer shall meet with the grave punishment? And this punishment will be multiplied for them on the day of resurrection where they shall remain disgraced in it forever. I have committed all these crimes. So is there any scope for me? To stop in the report. Now the sadness. Wahshi knows Quran better than you. <laughs> He's not a Muslim. <laughs> He's actually quoting Quran. Surah 25, verse 68. Now you ask, I'm not a scholar, but asking me for washing you. <laughs> right? So he, look at how interesting. He's not a Muslim, but he's acquainted with what's being revealed to the Prophet. So he's thinking, hang on a minute. How can I embrace Islam when the Quran says that the murderer, idol worshipper, and adulterer will get a severe punishment? He goes, I've done all these things. Because I'm an idol worshipper, I'm an adulterer, and I've committed, you know, murder. <laughs> when this message came to the Prophet, Allah Ta'ala revealed the next verse. Surah Al-Fulqan, Surah 25, verse 70. <laughs> Except those who repent, accept Iman, perform pure deeds for such people, 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will convert their sins into good deeds. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ever most forgiving, the most merciful. Stop in the report. How beloved was Wahshi to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He didn't even let the Prophet answer. The messengers brought his message. Allah ta'ala answered it. So this message was then sent back. So imagine what's the message returned to Allah ta'ala answered your question. So Wahshi reflects and he said, Send this message now. <laughs> o Muhammad, the condition in this verse is uncompromising because it says, except for those who repent, accept Iman and perform pure deeds. What if I do not have the opportunity to fulfill it? I, the three conditions. So what was he, what was he asking? This is again showing his deep understanding. What he's really asking is this. What if I just embrace Islam, repent for great crimes, but I am slack in doing good deeds? <laughs> Except, of course, shirk. But, you know, this is how eloquent the companions were. He's basically saying, Allah has put a condition on this. I've got to repent, I'll do that. I've got to have iman, I'll do, obviously perform pure deeds. Well, hang on a minute. <laughs> Maybe I'm a bit slack in that. Before the Prophet could answer, Allah Ta'ala answers. Surah An-Nisa, Surah 4, verse 48. إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ عِي يُشْرَكَ بِهِ وَيَغْفِرُونَ مَا دُونَ ذَلِكَ Verily, Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala does not forgive shirk, but He may forgive all besides this for whom He wills. The messenger then comes back and look what's happening. Why she's asking questions? Allah is answering. The messenger comes back with this verse. So why she reflects upon this verse? He goes, send another message. <laughs> this forgiveness depends on the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I therefore do not know whether I shall be forgiven or not. Is there any other scope for me? Namely, if I embrace Islam, shun shirk. There is still no guarantee that my other sins will be forgiven. Have <laughs> you understood? Because Allah Ta'ala is saying, He may forgive. <laughs> he goes, I want guarantee. The messenger comes back to the Prophet Allah Ta'ala reveals another verse. Surah Az-Zumar, Surah 39, verse 53. <laughs> Say, O my servants who have wronged their souls, never lose hope of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Verily, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives all sins. Undoubtedly, He is the most forgiving, the most merciful. The messenger comes back. Upon hearing this, Wahshi burst into tears, radiyallahu and he said, yes, this is in order. Now there is no excuse. He then embraced Islam. The other Muslims then inquired, Ya Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa we had also committed the sins that Wahshi committed. Does this apply to us or only to Wahshi? The Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa said, it applies to all Muslims in general. Subhanallah. 
This is recorded in Tabarani, Al-Haytami in Majma Az-Zawaid, Volume 7, page 100, stated, One of the narrators, Abyan ibn Sufyan, is regarded as a weak narrator by Imam Zahbi. Ayat al-Sahaba, Volume 1, page 122-4 of the New English Translation. So that second reference is where you get the names. So it doesn't really matter who that person was. But Tabarani and others mention it was Wahshi. And it makes sense because he, you know, he did those crimes. So now, why on earth am I relating this report going to Abu Huraira's life? Because, go back to the report. When that woman came and she committed those great crimes, what did Abu Huraira say to her? No repentance. In other words, get away from me. And what did the Prophet say to Abu Huraira? He goes, your reply was terrible. And then he recited these verses which were revealed for Wahshi. In other words, if she repents, Allah will not only forgive, he'll, he'll replace it with good. Now think about that. Imagine all the crimes that that woman committed. Allah has turned it into good deeds. Think about that. She's committed zina. Not only forgiven, I've replaced it with good. She killed a child. Not only forgiven, I've replaced it with good. Wahshi killed Hamza. I've replaced it with good. Right? Adulti have replaced it with good. Why is Allah replacing it with good? Because he's the most merciful, he's the most generous. He said, I'm not only forgiven, I'm going to give you a reward for it as well. So the Sahaba, they were again thinking, maybe this is only for Wahshi. Because he's a Sahaba and maybe, you know, so on and so forth. So they asked on our behalf. And the Prophet said, it applies to all Muslims. So think about that. How merciful is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And Wahshi couldn't ask anything else. There's nothing left to ask. If you had left something to wiggle about, you could say, oh, what's left? You ask the person, what, what wiggling room have you got left now? And he goes, nothing. Embrace Islam then. So now just to wrap it up. What did that woman do when she was told that Allah Ta'ala has, will, has forgiven her if she repents? What did she do by way of repentance? Prostrated. Is that it? Free to slave. And? Okay. So keep that in mind. Looking at all of these reports now. The first valuable note. No other than Allah, the Almighty and Glorious Himself, was answering the queries of Sayyidina Wahshi during his correspondence with Rasulullah. Now, why is that so important? Because all people know about Wahshi is, he's martyred Hamza. He goes, and they have a tasi. It's like Muawiyah, he fought Ali. Is that all he did, brother? Right? Well, that's all we need to know about him. Then you say, don't you know that Allah was answering his questions directly? When you mention that, I'll tell you straight, a person either falls off his chair, what you want about, brother? Look at how close he was to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's number one. Number two. Secondly, the majesty of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa who personally invited the killer of his most exalted uncle to the truth. Only a prophet could do that. You could argue, Allah put into his heart, he's beloved to me. So Rasulullah obviously had to show love. But leaving that to one side, he's inviting him. He didn't even say, let him come to me. He's inviting him. Thirdly, the intelligence of Sayyidina Wahshi in interpreting the sacred verses 
and his acquaintance with them. You already knew Quran. And what does that teach you? Don't think the unbelievers are fools. Sometimes they know quite a bit about Islam. They're just pulling your leg. Why should you quite a bit? Number four. Note how our loving and exalted Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala leaves no stone unturned to those who wish to embrace his glorious deen with whatever baggage they may be carrying. While sadly, many Muslims ignorantly turn those interested away by stating, before you embrace Islam, you must first, and the big list comes up, thereby frightening others from internal salvation. Look at the contrast. Allah Ta'ala just said at the end, just, just take the shahada, I'll forgive. What do we say? You're going to get circumcised. It's Ramadan now. Nah. You're going to fast. You're going to pray five times a day. You're flying the hell out of him. What is this about telling you? Don't worry about your baggage. All of that will get forgiven. Right? And we're not going to burden you. Number five. The only thing which is a must to eradicate completely, never revert back to shirk. Otherwise, the shahada is meaningless. That's the only thing the Prophet didn't compromise with. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Shirk. But even if you commit it, you do tawbah, I'll forgive that. Number six, the intelligence of the other companions, radiyallahu ta'ala anhu, in inquiring about this matter, determining whether the above verses were only for wahi or for the whole of the jinn and mankind at large. Subhanallah. And just to add this, wahshi himself had related, radiyallahu when I came finally into the presence of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa he asked me, are you really the one who killed Hamza? I replied, yes. All praise be to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who has honored him by my hand and not disgraced me by his. Upon this, the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wa O Wahshi, now go and strive in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, just as you used to fight to prevent people from going in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Subhanallah. Let's look at this. This is according to Tabarani in his Kadir 22-139. Al-Haytami in Majma Az-Zawaid, volume 6, page 121, stated Hassan and Shaykh al-Ahadith Mawlana Muhammad Idris Sahib Kandahlawi, Rahmatullahi, in his Seerat al-Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, volume 2, page 224-5 of the English translation. So he's finally arrived, imagine. When he came, the Prophet asked him one question, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, did you really kill Hamza? He didn't be around the bush. And look how eloquent he is. You know, if you look at Washi, you know, he can see he's just, you know, he was a chosen servant. He goes, yes. Alhamdulillah, who has honored him with my hand, not disgrace me by his hand. The Prophet then, this is why I'm mentioning it, what did he say to Wahshi? He said, now go and strive in the path of Allah. Just as you used to strive to prevent people in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This last bit is critical in understanding Tawbah. Here our beloved messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam gives advice to Sayyidina Wahshi radiyallahu and this is applicable and relevant to new Muslims and all sinning Muslims alike who repent. Namely, if you want to truly atone for your sins, then now do the exact opposite 
of the sins which you used to perpetrate. Those, for instance, if one used to steal, let him or her now dedicate his life to giving charity. If one used to turn people away from Islam, let him or her now dedicate their life to inviting people to Islam. Those for Sayyidina Wahshi, fighting in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was now most appropriate considering how he had previously weakened the believers by taking out its most skilled and ferocious warrior. Those note, the woman who had committed adultery and killed her child in shame as part of her dependence had set free a slave woman together with her child. Subhanallah. Look at the understanding of the companions of the Prophet Why do you think she did that? Because somebody, she had a little tickle. Right? She's thinking, I've killed. I've committed adultery. So she's thinking, what can I do? Free a slave together with a child. Meaning I brought a child back to life. And I freed a slave. So note, all of that goes back to the hadith of Sayyidina Abu Huraira and what makes me really amazed is that these people were the great sinners. And you think to yourself, it's like you click your finger and they've got such a deep understanding of these. So which two of us discussed? One who was Wahshi. He sounds like an alim. And one is that woman. She sounds like an alim. And these were the companions of the Prophet. That was the immensity of the prophetic rank. Once you saw the Prophet, something amazing starts happening to these people. Which other lesser mortals take years if not a lifetime to understand. That's a part of that. So all I mentioned today was basically again taking a glimpse into Sayyidina Abu Huraira and his encouraging others to the glorious deen and educating them. But when he did err, he was the first to put his hands up and even from his errors we learn most valuable lessons. And I mentioned a little about Sayyidina Wahshi because it was relevant to the hadith of the woman who repented. But any questions you like ask?